$216 billion. That's the size of the New York State fiscal year 2023 budget proposed by Governor Kathy Hochul, who was sworn in as New York's 57th governor on August 24, 2021. Governor Hochul's first budget proposal, which was unveiled on January 18th, comes as the state's fiscal outlook continues to improve, with tax receipts repeatedly exceeding expectations, an extraordinary influx of federal aid, and even more money from last year's personal income and corporate tax increases. With these resources available, the governor proposed an expansive agenda, including a $10 billion healthcare recovery and transformation plan, $2.2 billion for one-time homeowner tax rebates, $2 billion for COVID relief to be negotiated with the legislature, and billions in recurring out-year spending across many service areas. Simultaneously, however, over time, the budget added $15 billion to the state's reserves and is balanced every year through 2027. Now, attention turns to negotiations with the state legislature. CBC was fortunate that the governor joined us recently for a fireside chat about her budget and priorities. The governor and I talked about budget negotiations, how to target relief and recovery programs, her commitment to not raise taxes, energy policy, BMTA's Interborough Express, and even more. We hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we enjoyed the conversation. To watch a video of that fireside chat, please visit our website, cbcny.org. And of course, be sure to tune in soon to our next episode of What's the Data Point, back with our co-host Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Take care, New York. Alicia, you love my budget, so this should be easy, right? Sure, sure. We can get that out of the way. Actually, though, I, I want to say, um, n- not we don't when we say nice things, it's not always acknowledged. So I like to pause because you said something nice. Okay, we're good. Because let's talk football, let's talk Super Bowl, let's talk anything. <laughs> Actually, that's a bad topic for me. But thank you for being here today. It's a busy day for you. A little bit, a little bit. Um, so you know, thank you for taking the time. It's really wonderful, um, and it's generous of your time. Thank you also for introducing and having the conversation with Secretary Buttigieg at our virtual dinner. Um, that was wonderful. Um, should we dive into the budget, since let's, you, since let's you do mentioned? It. Let's do it. Uh, thank you. I, I do want to thank the Citizens Budget Commission, because this is an extraordinary organization that performs a critical role. I mean, keeping government accountable, uh, giving your ideas, the wealth of your experience, the people in this room to help us do the right thing. And I want to thank you for all your efforts. And I don't think that's acknowledged enough, but we truly mean that. So thank uh, you. Thank you very much. We, Always aim to be constructive. Sometimes the criticisms are tough, but we're always here to have those conversations and make things better and look at the long run. And let's look at your budget for a second, because that's amazing when you look at the long run. This is an executive budget. You know, I've been doing this since 1993, off and on. A five-year financial plan, one more year than is normal, balanced in every year, I think unprecedented. You've put in... um, Throughout that plan, 15% of state operating funds, that amount, $19 billion, into reserves in that plan. So this is a plan that really does prioritize fiscal stability and fiscal prudence, which is important because there are challenges in the economy, challenges in the economic recovery, and a transformation, remote work that can affect revenues, our downtowns, our office space. But one of the immediate challenges we face right now is, obviously, a budget is negotiated with the legislature. The executive budget is often a... We'd like it to be a ceiling, but it's often considered a floor. 
So since you have this priority on fiscal stability and fiscal prudence, how sacrosanct is that priority and how do you hold the line on spending and hold on to those reserves during the budget negotiation process? Love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure, thank you for the question. And uh, I know based on past history, everyone's a little anxious about the process, but this is not my first budget. I had to balance 14 municipal budgets on time with reserves and also, uh, yeah, a few less zeros, I'll admit that right now. <laughs> uh, but the process is the same, you know, how you can take care of the basic needs of your community, uh, keep the tax burden as low as possible, but make sure that you are prepared for a rainy day, uh, which happens unexpectedly. So that was the, uh, the life of experience I have doing working in local government that I brought to this experience. But I also, having been lieutenant governor and having worked in le other levels of government, I also know there is a legislative process. And what I set out to do was to use the extraordinary opportunity we have before us, which is unprecedented revenues, tax receipts are up, the infusion of money from the federal government, we'll never see the likes of that again probably in our lifetime, so we have to be smart about that. And also the stock market was doing very well. So the revenues are coming in, and yes, there's a tendency in some circles to say, okay, let's have a good time, let's spend this. That is not prudent. I wanna make sure that we were socially responsible fiscally prudent and met the needs of the moment. So we still have a lot of unmet needs. I understand what the legislature is going to be looking for. So I made sure I addressed those issues. We'll be investing $10 billion in healthcare, stabilizing our hospitals that were brought to their knees during this pandemic, the extraordinary costs they had to incur, as well as the staffing shortages, which are unsustainable. I have National Guard to this day in hospitals throughout New York State to backfill a uh, crisis situation because of the pandemic, that's not sustainable. So we're investing money there, and I know that's a priority of the legislature. So what I'm doing is talking about issues I know are important to them. The environment, $400 million, largest infusion ever into our environmental protection fund, as well as I'm gonna need your help getting this over the finish line, a $4 billion environmental bond that'll allow us to make the investments in critical environmental infrastructure to build resiliency. I also addressed childcare, $1.4 billion to allow 400,000 more children to have the security of childcare because we know there's a reason a lot of people aren't back to work. That is the moms are tending to take care of kids. I know this, I had to give up my job as an attorney for Senator Moynihan because I had no one to watch my kids, so this hit me personally. So women are still dealing with that and that's why you're not seeing all these buildings filled downtown. There's no, not enough childcare. Also, our, our education system, you know, making sure that we elevate everything from K through 12, but also I'm reimagining our, our SUNY system and the CUNY system. There is untapped potential to make this be a premier institution. We've not met that Excelsius, uh, that, that excellence that I believe that we're capable of, and I'm leaning hard into that. So you think about the issues I'm talking about now, and there are many more, uh, addressing the needs of small businesses, our renters, housing. I'm addressing those already in my budget. So. The legislature has already been complimentary of the fact that we're not, they're not, I've heard this every time I talk to a legislator daily, we're so happy we don't have to go to war over this, we don't have to fight. They're happy with where we are. And I also was smart enough with my team to set aside a significant amount of money of our one-time pandemic dollars to help them help me decide how to spend it. So there's plenty to go around, but the bottom line is we are funding everything we're talking about for the next five years. I don't want to have uh, recurring expenses 
that we're going to all of a sudden, and I hope to be around a long time, I don't want to be having to deal with this in another decade or however long it happens. Uh, I, I also know I have to leave the next generation of leaders a, a fiscally sound document to be the blueprint going forward. So we've accomplished that. And I will work with the legislature. Uh, I'm very collaborative. It's a different game in Albany. People are feeling that, different relationship with the city of New York. So the competitive nature of the budget process, I've done this before. I know what I'm doing. And so I feel comfortable in that. But also, I have a lot of respect for the legislators and the voices they bring to the process. So I believe at the end of the day, we're going to end up with a very healthy, uh, again, fiscally responsible budget that will meet the needs of today because the needs are extraordinary still. A lot of people are still hurting as a result of the pandemic. That's certainly true. And, and the list of needs and, and, and the activities in your budget is sometimes dizzying to, to keep. I mean, as we counted and depending how you put it in buckets, around $6 billion into relief, recovery, economic development programs, which doesn't include some of that child care and other investments you've done on the recurring long basis, $2 billion for a, um, a homeowner tax rebate, um, some money for uh, tax rebates and, and programs for small businesses, another $2 billion, as you mentioned, with the legislature to negotiate out a strategy to say, okay, there's still money on the table. I think What's, that helps a lot, too. I mean, yeah. just gets the, but I'm glad you mentioned the tax relief as well. I mean, despite the fact that people's incomes have gone up somewhat, it's all swallowed up by inflation. So people in the state are just not getting ahead. That is why we also looked at what we can do to help them meet their needs, and that is why it's an unprecedented over $2 billion property tax relief, mm -hmm. as well as $1.2 billion expediting of the middle class tax That's breaks right. that were scheduled, but not to go into effect until 2025. And so, so I am fortunate to have a, a very brilliant team that surrounds me. Uh, Rob Mohican, my budget director, long years of experience, and uh, Michael Lasher, who helped us come up with 220 policy proposals. I mean, just this is the dream team you want to have around you, as well as uh, my, my rest of my incredible individuals who work with me. But we are very strategic in this policy that met the needs, but also making sure that the money is there to cover it today and into the future. Into the future, just before we get to those priorities, you have wisely proposed changes to the rainy day fund. It's kind of structured pretty poorly. It's too small. It, it's um, it's benchmarked on the general fund, not operations funds. How we want to support your changes, and even, frankly, push them a little further on the rainy day fund. Is that something that we can get done in this session? Does anybody besides you and I care about this? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And this will be part of my argument. I think people in this room care. Anybody care about this? All right. They, all, they all care. Don't undersell it. Uh, there's a lot. Of, there's, it just makes sense. I don't have to create this scary scenario that, oh my god, we could have a 100-year pandemic someday and the sky's falling. It actually happens. So, so I, I think there's this sense of, yes. Uh, you can't count on Washington because of the politics. We are very fortunate to get what we did out of them, and it was an extraordinary amount of money. That's going to help fund schools, health care, the environment, uh, a lot of programs in the, in the next few years, but it's going to dry up. It's going to dry up. So we can get this done. I really believe that, and that money set aside, again, that comes back to my local government experience where we had to have 15% reserves every year. I, that was my set aside 15% because I don't know what's going to happen with the stock market. I don't know what's going to happen, you know, with remote work and some of the other challenges and people, you know, some people making a wrong decision that they're going to regret by leaving our state. We'll get them back. They're going to miss the greatest comeback in our history. And I'm telling everybody that uh, we'll welcome you back. So, and again, I don't know if there's going to be another variant. I mean, we are all set to start talking about 
you know, reducing some of the restrictions. You know, with this New York City, we had about a 1% infection rate throughout the fall. November 26, we had our, it was first declared a variant overseas, named by the World Health Organization, and all of a sudden, I think it was December 3rd, we had our first case here in New York, and we were crushed. 23% infection rate three and a half weeks ago. Uh, now we're down about four or five percent. So I, I it's don't been, think it's going to happen. But we have to be ready for that. Hundred years isn't what it used to be. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I have. I, I, now that you mentioned that, you want to go off on the weather events. We have hundred-year events every year. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, so on, let's, I think we got to come up with another label. So that two billion dollars, and I've heard those positive um, um, comments from the legislature. Of course, I've also heard five billion dollars for childcare above budget. Another billion, I know you've asked for rent relief uh, money from the federal government. The legislature want, wants to fund another $3 billion for excluded workers, $800 million for you. That's a lot of stuff to put in that $2 billion bag. How do you choose? You've chosen home, you've chosen property tax relief. How do you choose who is in most in need of relief and residents and businesses and what programs are actually going to be effective? Because New York's Frankly, New York's track record of economic development programs is not necessarily one that creates jobs or provides the relief. How do you choose those programs and make sure that they have an effect? Well, we know we've, we have a track record of experience in this. So this is where having been 27 years of elective office every level, but also seven years of lieutenant governor, I know all the programs. I announced every one of these programs. I go back and see how they're working, whether it's the affordable housing projects, and I'm very excited about our $25 billion affordable housing program which will include uh, 100,000 units, but 10,000 of which will be supportive housing. That has to happen immediately. And we can talk all we want. I want shovels in the ground like this because that addresses the need we have of homelessness. We need more supportive housing. There's people of mental health challenges on our streets today. That is a humanitarian crisis. They need to be someplace they're getting help. Substance abuse programs, we're investing tremendously in those because this pandemic, and you could not have foreseen this at the time. In February 2020, we we're the safest big city in America. We are still among the safest big cities in America. Just they're all going up. Every single city is going up. And we'll get that back under control. But we fell hard and fast. The human condition was hit hard, and a lot of people succumbed to you know, their already pre-existing mental health challenges. It got more challenging. Kids that never showed any sign of problems we're just devastated by the lack of connection. So we have to invest money into programs like mental health programs and more programs for kids after school to help bring them back from a year and a half they lost. So, so we have to look at that scenario. We have to bring, invest in our schools right now to help with programs that they never had to take care of before. So I believe that there's, you know, you talk about what our priorities are, taking care of those issues, housing issues, the people who are, you know, the landlords who are still not being paid I was just in Washington uh, two days ago, three days ago, and asking for at least a billion dollars from other governors who have not spent it. I said that in a room full of other governors, and all of a sudden they're like, she's coming after our money. So, so yeah, I've got, you, know, you did not have the same needs we did. And it was, the way it was spread around, that was a failure, to think that every state almost had equal needs in terms of uh, who needs rent relief. Which city has more renters than we do? And, and, more, and, the, and also being the epicenter of the pandemic. So, so they need to make another calculation. I've already conveyed that a number of times. So we'll see if we get that money to work with, Andrew. I can't guarantee it, but I'm looking at a defined pot of money. I don't want to go beyond that. We'll continue to work with the legislature on their priorities, but we really have met many of them already. And they're happy with that. So I, I will, you know, 
It'll be interesting. We're gonna we're ready for it. Well, we're ready for it. We certainly support you, uh, you. holding the line on that. You know, the budget increases if you include that two billion. It's five point six billion more than last year at state operating funds. If you go before the pandemic to next year with all funds, it's twenty nine billion higher. There's a lot of money there, but there's a lot of needs, as you say. The key is to manage it well. The key is to spend the money we have now after we set aside reserves for the purpose it's intended. Help people get through this pandemic. Hard hit small businesses. I was just on Broadway last night. What a heart. Please, everybody, buy tickets. They need support. Please. And it was a great play. Get out there and support. And business leaders, tell everybody to come back. Give them a bonus to burn the Zoom app and just go come down back to work. You know, just, just come on back. Come on back. Because you know what's fascinating? The restaurants are packed. You can't get a hotel room, but people don't want to go into work. So they're here. They just, they just want to keep sitting in their apartment. I, I've seen them. I'm, gonna, I'm tracking them. Uh, and I see them here today. <laughs> so um, so we're going to meet those needs. So I really, feel, I really feel very confident about that. One of the challenges, we need to not only save money for a rainy day, but we need to preserve our tax base. And there are threats from the economic change with remote work, but also that we have with the tax increases last year, the highest top marginal personal income tax in the country and the highest corporate franchise tax in the country. And we were losing as a share of the nation millionaires before the salt cap. How big a threat are our high taxes and the economic transformation? And what can you do? As you said, you want to be the most business friendly. How can you make sure that people come back? It's something I think about constantly, Andrew. And so I've talked to a lot of business leaders about those who are thinking of leaving you know, those who've left, how we get them back, but also new industries that we can stimulate here. We need to diversify. You know, we have been very reliant on real estate. Real estate needs to be strong. It is the core of, uh, of our city. You know, people need places to live and work. Real estate is critically important. Financial services. We're going to continue being the, uh, the epicenter of everything related to financial services. But what we've done in the area of tech, no one could have foreseen this a few years ago. We, we just surpassed uh, San, uh, I'm sorry, Massachusetts as being the number two uh, city with the generation of newest tech jobs. People want to be here. I mean, this is something employers need to know this. And I spend more time than people realize uh, recruiting in person as well as on the phone businesses to come here or expand here. They cannot touch two things we have, highly educated workforce, highly motivated, but also diversification. I mean, people want to see a diverse workforce. This is now part of their goals. And a business I'm talking to from a big Western state said, how are your diversity goals going? Uh, I can help you meet them here. I can help you meet them here. So they're seeing this. So I'm finding other ways to attract businesses here who also know that after this pandemic and everybody enjoyed, you know, zooming in in their pajamas. And I think people are tired of that now. I think that people want to congregate together. They're coming. So businesses that are savvy are seeing that this is the beginning of a whole new era of attention on cities like New York because nobody can match our vibrancy. You can try all you want. And we continue to bring more young people. The west side of, this, of Manhattan now has more tech workers than places around Boston, which was always, we, we were always second or third to fourth to them. We've changed that dynamic. So you look at the big tech companies that are coming, the smaller supply chains. I'm leaning hard into the semiconductor industry. I was just uh, in Albany announcing our desire to have the National Semiconductor Technology Center there. I mentioned to the president. I'll mention to him again today when I'm with him. Uh, that should be here. It should be a hub that has spin-off industries that are going to be transformative. So being smart about diversifying, uh, but also letting the people know that you know we 
I think for a long time in this city, and I'm not going to say anything more than that, in this city, I think a lot of people of, of uh, you know, successful people, high net worth individuals, didn't feel welcome in their own city. They, they had this sense that their, their success was being denigrated, that they weren't welcome here. These are not just the people creating jobs. They're also the ones that are supporting our arts, our cultures, our philanthropies. And I can't have them doing that in Miami because that is going to hurt us as well. That's the argument I'm making to other people. We cannot drive them away because they're supporting programs that help the homeless and helping with job training programs for underserved kids, all the things we care about. We have to make sure that they feel that, yes, we're, we're happy for your success. We're glad you're in New York. And I can do that. I am constantly doing that with the mayor. Uh, we just talked about this yesterday, how the two of us are going to be out there promoting the city like no one has ever seen before. And we're going to have fun in the process. And people are going to want to be part of that. So that's not a written down budget strategy. Mm -hmm. But I know it's one that has been missing and it's going to work, as well as uh, making sure we address. I'm not raising taxes, by the way. So you, you have I've just, you know, not raising taxes. Uh, not raising taxes, not raising taxes. Because we, we have enough to work with to meet the needs, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work on working with the legislature to understand we have enough to meet the needs. Let's prioritize them. No long-term recurring costs that we can't pay for, and we're going to get through this. So I'm looking forward to the opportunity to really work with them, roll our sleeves up, and, and we're going to get, get this done. And, and also, the city and the state have to come back. I mean, there's, I don't just talk about the city, the whole state. Uh, has its unique needs, and I'm focused on the various sectors that we can promote in different parts of our state. So that's what a lot of my time is spent on the economy, the rest of the state as well. As an aside, but not really an aside, you're working with the mayor and your collaboration is refreshing, important. I, we, I'm sure everyone in this room urges you to keep it going. Um, and it, not only that, it's a signal and restoring faith in government, which is really necessary. So thank you for that. Um, moving on to other uh, priorities, the MTA. I think I saw Jano earlier. How crucial is the MTA? Let's talk about the operating budget, which doesn't get talked about enough. Thankfully, to our congressional delegation, we have enough money to kind of paper over what is a 2.5 structural billion structural gap in operating budget over the next few years. Now, CBC identified $2.9 billion of operating budget savings, but we, if we don't get those savings, we're going to be on the path to or on the track to tax increases or fare increases or service hikes, what can we do to work with labor and to lead, and perhaps your leadership to work with labor to actually change how the MTA operates so it can be fiscally sustainable when that federal money runs out? Excellent question. And first of all, you mentioned Jan Lieber. He is no longer acting CEO and chairman. He is now the permanent because we got that to the legislature. <laughs> Raise your hand, Jenna. I can't see out there. Are you there? Oh, there you go. Okay, okay. All the tough questions go over there. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, we, again, this is an, the time we're meeting the moment. No one could have foreseen that our ridership would go down to zero. I mean, during the pandemic, there was no reason for people to be, other than, God bless some our healthcare workers and nurses and people going to their jobs and the people working the grocery stores and our transit workers who showed up day after day during the darkest days of the pandemic. So our revenues plummeted, unanticipated, not a, not a rainy day, I would have called that a blizzard day. Uh, it was very bad. And so we are still coming out of the loss in revenues from that, we understand that. But if we don't also use this time to continue the investments that we've already proposed, then shame on us. I mean, look at what FDR did. I, I live in a house that FDR once lived in, so I'm always, there's giant paintings of them everywhere. I'm always thinking about FDR. 
Uh, <laughs> there aren't many women in the pictures, I gotta tell you that. <laughs> uh, here either. Uh, uh, so you think about what he did. You know, he was governor right when the recession hit. You know, he wasn't elected president until 32. So um, he was there trying to manage you know, the meltdown in his own city, in his own state, before he went to Washington. But despite the economic despair of the time, he built. So I'm going to continue with the projects that we've identified that are transformative. Second Avenue subway, east side access, uh, making sure we get Penn Station done because New Yorkers should not have to arrive in a hellacious place on their way to work because that's not going to get people to want to come downtown. So I have a lot of plans that we're going to keep on track, as we say, Jenna, right? Because I know I'm always asking how much longer, how much longer? <laughs> I'm not going to live that long. Let's shave off a few years. <laughs> so, so I love working with them because they are, you know, can I say something about the MTA? We just had a blizzard. You know, no one gets, you know, no one talks about when the planes land, only when the planes crash. You know, that, that system kept through a blizzard and never stopped, never missed a moment. And if it had crushed, you know, crashed and no one could get to work, we all would have heard about it. But let's, let's commend the success of what they did just recently in that latest snowstorm. So, but, but we temporarily suspended fare increase because when you're trying to get someone to buy a product, you don't raise the prices. That is temporary. We're looking at fares, tolls, other innovative ways to bring in revenues, but also even just our tap and go, our new technologies, uh, getting people to get the best benefits so they don't have to sit there and calculate, you know, what hour is this, where am I going? Let's just make things simple. So we're using technology to simplify the process, as well as, and this is something that needs to be said, we have to enhance the security of the MTA and the rider's experience so they feel safe getting on. That is all part of the link of bringing people back to the city I was literally the mayor's second week on the job. We were down in the subway holding a press conference talking about our shared initiatives, uh, making sure there's plenty of enforcement in the subway so people feel secure, but also addressing the needs of the homeless and how we can bring in teams of individuals to help them get to a place where they're getting help. So, so we're hitting it on all factors here, keeping the major projects going, identifying other funding sources. And you mentioned working with labor. Yes, they're our partners through this, and we're going to have a very, you know, we continue to have a very collaborative relationship with them as well. And uh, we're going to get through that. We, we, know, we see the cha challenges, but we're going to continue with a, a bold, aggressive capital plan because we have to. If you don't make those investments now, the price will just go up, and that's what we're paying with now. Second Avenue subway, I was in a tunnel that was built in 1940. How much cheaper would it have been to finish it in 1940 than we're going to pay now? I mean, so I don't want future generations to say, boy, they missed their chance to do it when it was actually more affordable than it is in the future. So, so I look in the long term. These investments need to be made. We're going to address the fare issue, not this year, but I do believe there need to be recurring increases at the right time. Uh, but it's just not, we're still not back yet, and we're just not there. We're getting there. Uh, the numbers are looking much better in terms of dealing with the pandemic, but uh, we have to find more reasons to encourage people to just get back on the subway, come on down. And safety, that sense of safety and security is paramount. No, I think... I think that's you know crucially important as we mentioned at the at the start of our conversation. CBC has plenty of good ideas on the operating side too, and we look forward to, to working with you because that's the flip side that doesn't frankly get talked about enough, maybe because it's a few years out. Um, but it really is something that could end up, in addition to the um, disinvestment in capital potentially, really hobbling the system in the future. We have to work on both sides, and so we have ideas um, that we will share Thank and you. include that. 
so many topics, but we also have some questions that some of our trustees want to ask. So why don't we turn to that for a second, if that's okay? Sure, absolutely. Um, we were talking about the MTA, and I was I saw Dick here, Dick Ravage here, and I don't know if Dick had a question. If people have questions, you should raise your hand. But I was was talking to Dick on the way in. So why don't we keep on the subject of transportation? Hey, how are you, Tim? Um, you proposed uh, an interborough rail system. What is the estimated cost of that? And how do you expect to fund that? Out of the existing capital budget, uh, when you have understandably postponed congestion pricing for a year, but the revenue from that, if it ever gets done in the way that it was initially contemplated, uh, would provide the revenue necessary to repay the Fed loan and fund the existing budget. So when you, what, what is the interborough system? I was excited to hear the proposal. Um, what is it gonna cost and where are you gonna get the money from? Yeah, great question, Dick, and thank you for your many years of uh, public service, but also your particular experience with the MTA, so thank you. Um, I thought this was a fascinating idea to recognize that people who live in Brooklyn or Queens very often now are working in Brooklyn or Queens as well. They're not, they don't, shouldn't have to take a, a public transportation to get into the city of Manhattan to get back out to where they want to go. That just is illogical. It doesn't recognize the shift in demographic trends where people are actually living now. So that just was a smart uh, adjustment in people's attitudes about where the trains need to go or where the transportation needs to go. But we're using the existing line. So let's talk about comparative costs. Uh, this is a smart, cost-effective way to use an existing rail line that can eventually connect with the Cross Harbor Tunnel because we know how important freight is. Ask Jerry Nadler, you're going to get an earful on freight importance of that. But he wasn't wrong. I mean, who would have thought with the supply chain challenges and things not getting, you know, products not getting to market in time because, and also getting more trucks off the road. So this is, this is ingenious. But also, I don't know the cost, Dick, because we're, we have, we've just launched our study. We have three major options, and they differ greatly in cost. Uh, one is going to be heavy rail, one is light rail, and one is bus rapid transit. So within that, but I think it's going to be, I don't want to throw out a number. Did we say less? <laughs> uh, you know, probably have at least a zero or two. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I really, I would be, yeah, we thought about this, and I, and, I, and I looked at estimates, but I just don't know which is going to be the best recommendation, but it's not going to be anywhere near some of the other major projects that we're talking about, and we will be able to fund that with uh, setting aside funding now as well as making it part of our capital plan. It's going to take a number of years, uh, despite my best efforts, because we have a lot of studies to do, but having an existing, all the existing right-of-ways right now saves an enormous amount of time. That is usually where you lose could be decades when there's opposition and concern and okay we're going to get that right but that line is there and my judgment's ready to go we have already started the study already underway within days of me announcing it so we're ready to go with that but uh we'll be analyzing the numbers it's not going to be i'll tell you it's not going to be 20 billion dollars it's going to be less than that uh it might be even less than you know i'm not going to guess I, i'm not playing this game but uh <laughs> Actually, I was playing the game, wasn't I? Uh, All right, but there's three major options, and it just really comes down to which one is the best. And there's a major cost differential between bus rapid transit and heavy rail. And since you already have $60 billion of projects already in, um, in the multiple capital plans, um, it's certainly we, we need to prioritize and, and, and get the right ones moving. Other questions? I think I talked to Sherry on the way in. Um, 
Governor Sherry Hyman, thank you for being here. This has been terrific. I, I have a question on uh, environment and alternative energy sources, which I'm very excited to see, I think many of us in this room, the focus on uh, moving full steam ahead to get to these alternative sources. The question I have is, given that we don't know fully the capacity that wind energy is going to be able to provide and what the what there what some of the detriments may be to establishing these massive wind farms offshore has there been any thought given to piloting programs before moving f fully ahead with the complete rollout right and we are very much diversifying in that space because i cannot count on offshore wind off the shores of the coast of long island which hasn't even been built yet. You know, we're still, and I was at the manufacturing facility where we're making the bases and the, um, the base, part of the turbines in Albany, the port of Albany. And the, the, this is brilliant. You know, talk about weaning ourselves from foreign supply chains. This is exactly what we want. We want to bring that manufacturing back here so we're not subject to the whims of geopolitical battles or trade wars or whatever is happening in other parts of the world. So we'll manufacture, ship it down the huts and get it out there and also have training programs for that. But I'm not, I'm not putting all my eggs in that basket because I know we're a number of years away from that. That is why, as we continue to tra transition New York City in particular uh, to renewables, I made sure that we were very bold. One of my first couple weeks on the job, uh, we were looking at two options. One was to bring hydropower down from Quebec, long existing transmission lines, or looking at wind and solar from uh, the Catskill region. And you know they were viewed as one or the other. I said, why aren't we doing both? Like, why, we have the need now. Why would we do these in sequence? You do them simultaneously. So we are finding other ways to bring in power without waiting for that one industry. Well, when that industry takes off, it is going to be, we're, we're investing $500 million into that industry this year, uh, offshore wind. We are the, I declared this, therefore it's true, I found out. Uh, we are the epicenter of offshore wind, and nobody can touch us. You know, we are, in fact, I'm announcing another project in a couple of days. I'll be out there. Uh, with the Secretary of Interior, as well as the Secretary of Energy, who's been very supportive of what we're doing here. So America's paying attention to what we're doing. Washington's paying attention. They love the boldness of how we're embracing this, but I know it is not going to be powering homes anytime in the near future. So we have to make sure that the transition is smart and there's other sources to make sure. We're not going to leave this city without power. I can guarantee, guarantee that. So I've been studying the budget for a long time. But when I want to learn, even before... Andrew, do you have a life? <laughs> I was a professional musician and a chef before this. Okay, I, 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 knew, I knew you had any more fun than just a guy who reads budgets all the time. I, I sense that in you, Andrew. I sense that. <laughs> I, I, I will not. I'm going to talk to Robert about this afterwards. <laughs> um, you know, if, if these budget people get a bad name. But one of my sages, and we held a forum at the beginning of the... Uh, pandemic with the sages of the ages besides Dick and Alaire. One of my sages is, is Steve Berger. Oh. So I'd, lo I'd love to give him an opportunity. I was talking to him on the way in. Uh, did you have a question? We were, you had mentioned something to me. First of all, let me tell you, it's, it's not since Hugh Carey have we had a governor with a sense of humor and it's a breath of fresh air. <laughs> I will note that was the last Irish governor. So oh, we yes. <laughs> and, and at some point, I've got stories. Um, I, I unfortunately have the budget nerd question. There are some of us, many of us in this room, uh, for decades, have been 
talking to the state about the state going on gap financing and putting out their financial plan at the same time they put out the, uh, the budget. I know, I know the budget division has 243 reasons why they can't go on gap. But the fact of the matter is it would be not only something in terms of transparency, but I believe it will be a great help to you and to a governor in running the state if we could over the next period of time get to gap financing. So this is Citizens Budget Commission. That's the question for you. <laughs> also, if you're looking for projections in the future, we have put forth a five-year financial plan already that's fully funded. So I think that's progress that has not happened before. And as I talked to my budget director and we talked about you know, the same thing you're talking about, Steve, people need to know because we're talking about some very significant dollars right now. And people are saying, well, they're just gonna spend it all right now and then we're gonna be in trouble in a couple of years. I need to give people the confidence, and one, that we know how to do this. We're gonna be socially responsible in every sense of the word because we have very deep human needs right now because of the pandemic and otherwise. But also, I have to make sure that this state not just stays afloat, but gives confidence to investors and the people who do bond ratings for all the communities. And I was always subjected to this when I was a local official. We had to go, go to New York City and convinced everybody in the bond markets that we were a safe bet. So I understand this. This is part of you know, my DNA. So I need to do that for the state of New York. I want people to understand that we have a plan. It is a very healthy plan. And it also has buffered in for the contingencies for that rainy day or the blizzard day or the next pandemic or the stock market or recession or inflation out of control. I have assessed all these risks. Uh, because I live with them every day. I'm constantly seeing the risks and the threats and how we mitigate them. So that is exactly what we're attempting to do, and I'll continue working toward that goal of giving people as clear a picture as I have today, uh, except for the unforeseen global pandemic every 10, 100 years. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that'll be great, and I look forward to, you, you know, got the mid-year update out in time, the quick start reports. These are things that we haven't seen. I look forward, hopefully, in an enacted budget to actually see a financial plan, just one of the things we will advocate for. Um, I know your time is pressed today. Um, got to talk to the should... president about fighting crime, and somehow I always slip in more money for New York. <laughs> well, yeah. All right, thank you. Well, I want to thank you very much. You, it's been a wonderful time. Really appreciate it, and good luck with the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Kathy Hope.